The Pharisees applied God's law in their own way, acted unfairly, many taught the laws but did not comply with them. On the contrary, they acted as hypocrites, the priests thought more about the money they collected than about the people, and they turned their backs to God, so God sent Jesus, so the people could approach God through his own son, and not by the priests, who were no longer in the presence of God. The Pharisees and priests were so jealous of Jesus, and afraid that he would take away their power, they began to plan how to kill Jesus. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mountain, discussing something everyone wants happiness. Matthew 5-3-12. 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 12. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He wasn't referring to feeling happy or cheerful, like someone having fun or partying. True happiness is something more profound. It involves genuine contentment, a sense of satisfaction, and fulfillment in life. Jesus says that happy people are those who recognize their spiritual needs and get sad because of their sinful condition. They start to get to know and serve God. Even if they are hated or persecuted for doing God's will, they are happy because they know that they please Him and will be rewarded with eternal life. Matthew 6, 19-21. 19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. 20 But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 21 For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Many think wealth and pleasures give happiness, but Jesus didn't say that. Because when a person possesses these things and values them a lot, serving God loses importance, and they end up giving up true happiness. Jesus doesn't mean that just being poor or starving makes someone happy. But it is usually the disadvantaged people who react to the teachings of Christ and receive the blessing of true happiness. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 40-45. 40 And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 41 If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 42 Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 43 You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 44 But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 45 That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 6, 14-15. 14 If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 15 But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father's Father will not forgive your sins. Note. People often pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The funniest thing is that they want to be forgiven without having to ask for forgiveness, and they also don't want to forgive. They prefer to hold a grudge, hate, hurt, resentment for the person who once hurt them, or said something. What Jesus meant was, for you to be truly forgiven by God, you have to forgive with an open heart, for real. Whoever it is and however bad the situation was because God will give an account of our every attitude, so says the Lord vengeance is mine. I will repay and for you to have a free heart, you have to free yourself from all the grudge that was caused by other people, that's good for your soul and pleasing in the eyes of God. Many people say, I won't forgive because he doesn't deserve my forgiveness, but do you deserve God's forgiveness? What people fail to understand is that forgiveness is not for the one who hurt you but for yourself. When you forgive others, you free your heart so that God can enter. God cannot enter a place filled with hatred, so that place needs to be cleansed first. If you are struggling to forgive someone say this prayer aloud. 
Heavenly Father I ask you for forgiveness of my sins and I ask the Lord to minister forgiveness in my heart so that I may have enough strength to release forgiveness to those who have offended or hurt me in the past. I now place the wounds of my soul on your altar, so that the Holy Spirit of God may touch and heal them, allowing me to have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name Amen. Matthew 6, 14-15 and 7, verses 1-5. 1 Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 2 For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be measured to you. 3 Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 4 How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 5 You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Note Everyone loves to judge people, point fingers, judge what they wear, what they do, what they say, but those who do that always forget to take a look at the mirror and see that they are doing the same thing or something even worse, especially in the internet. If any drama happens, people automatically got a degree as judges and went running to criticize or attack the people, even without knowing what happens in that person's life. Yes, because most people only think they know, but only each one of us knows what is inside us. So when you start to think about criticizing a neighbor because he did or said anything, or someone you don't even know in the internet, or even someone in your family, remember, you are not a judge and not God, then no, you have no right to open your mouth to judge anyone not even if this person is the worst in the world. Whoever does that is God, and you are not him. Judge yourself, analyze your own actions, and be more concerned with pleasing God, not the others. In Galilee, a woman with a continuous flow of blood for 12 years spent all her money on doctors. She heard about Jesus and went out looking for him. She was considered unclean, there was a large crowd around him, and everyone was a squeeze, she thought, if I can only touch his clothes I will be cured, she approached and touched his clothes, her blood flow stopped instantly. And Jesus asked, who touched me? Peter said, someone in the crowd around you, Lord. Jesus said someone touched me because power came out of me. Then the woman bowed down before him and told what happened. Jesus said, daughter, your faith cured you. Go in peace and be cured of your illness. Mark 5:34. Jesus wore a garment called a tunic, which was common attire for men during that time. In Numbers chapter 15, God commanded that all tunics have a hem, a border with a blue cord, inscribed with his commandments. This means that all Jews, including Jesus, who wore such a tunic, had this hem. But why was Jesus's hem more special? It ties back to the prophecy in Malachi 4-2, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, or hem. So, when the woman touches specifically the hem of Jesus' garment, the prophecy of Malachi is fulfilled. Note. Man sacrifices his health to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the end. He lives as if he is never going to die and then dies having never really lived. How many people spend all the money searching for a cure but forget that they have the greatest doctors at their disposal? You need to have faith and believe in the cure that Jesus will heal you. Matthew 8, 23-28 Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Jesus slept during a storm to show us that peace is not in the absence of difficult moments, but in the presence of God. Jesus went to Bethsaida. The crowds followed Jesus on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion and healed them. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, it's already getting late. Send the crowds away, so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus said they did not need to go away, 
so the disciples were to give them something to eat. They said that they only had five pieces of bread and two fishes, which Jesus asked to be brought to him. Jesus directed the people to sit down in groups on the grass. The crowd sat in groups of fifty and one hundred. Taking the five pieces of bread and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of leftover broken pieces. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. No matter what you are going through, trust in God, and He will multiply everything in your life. During the journey on the sea, the disciples were distressed by the wind and waves but saw Jesus walking towards them on the sea. John's Gospel specifies that they were five or six kilometers from their departure point. The disciples were startled to see Jesus, but He told them not to be afraid. Peter asked Jesus, If it is you, command me, Lord Jesus, that I go to meet you above the waters. Jesus says in response, Come. After Peter came out of the ship and walked on water, he became afraid of the storm and began to sink. He called out to Jesus for help. Jesus caught him and, commenting on his lack of faith, led him back to the ship. After that, the storm stopped. Matthew 14, 27-31. Jesus was preaching in the synagogue and said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If someone eats this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the world's life. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus asked the twelve, Don't you want to go either? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom we shall go? You have the words of eternal life. Then Jesus replied, Haven't I chosen you, the twelve? Yet, one of you is a devil. He referred to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who would later betray him although he was one of the twelve. John 6. Jesus was saying that he would serve as an offering to God for our sins, and from that day on, to approach God was only possible through the one who sent him, Jesus. Note. He also already knew who would betray him. What many people do not understand is that all of this had to happen for the scriptures to be fulfilled. But people say, but if he was the son of God, why he did not get away from it? Because if it were for him to get away, he would not have even come to earth. He went for the purpose of being the final offering to God for our sins. He did not need to pass through any of this. He did this for us, even though people don't care about it. Judas did not understand what Jesus came to do. He thought Jesus would become king of Judea, defeat the Romans, and free the Jews from oppression. Jesus performed only two miracles in Jerusalem, and they both in pools, at the Pool of Siloam, when he healed the blind man in John 9, and the lame man who lay at the Pool of Bethesda for 38 years in John 5. 2 Samuel 5-6, states, The Jebusites taunted David, You will never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. They pronounced a curse on him. David conquered Jerusalem and later Jesus came to revoke every curse. When he healed the blind man Jesus gave three signs, the first was he spat mug into his eyes, reproducing the creation of the man from the mug, the second was to lead him out of darkness into the light, and the third was to open his spiritual vision and show that he is God. He did this on a Saturday to show that it is not about religiosity and tradition, but about manifesting the glory of God. So if you have a problem, don't ask why God, but, what for? And the answer will be, to manifest the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49. 45, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. 49 And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul is here pointing out the difference between two kinds of bodies, that is, the natural and the spiritual. Genesis 2. Verse 7 describes the creation of the first man, Adam, formed from the dust of the ground and given the breath of life by God. All humans share these common origins. However, Christ, referred to as the second Adam, is a life-giving spirit. Just as Adam was the initial human,
Christ is the first to be raised from the dead to eternal life. His resurrection marks a new form of existence as a life-giving spirit, becoming the source of spiritual life for believers' future resurrection. Christ's glorified human body corresponds to his glorified spiritual life, contrasting with Adam's natural life. In verse 46, Paul notes that the natural precedes the spiritual. Humans first experience natural life, born into the earthly realm, before attaining spiritual life. Adam, the natural man, originated from the dust of the earth. Christ, despite existing eternally, is termed the second man or second Adam because he came from heaven to earth after Adam. Although Christ had a human body like other humans, he did not originate from earthly dust but came from heaven. Due to his birth from a virgin through the Holy Spirit, Jesus did not inherit the sinful nature passed down through Adam's lineage. While Eve sinned first, sin entered the world through Adam. Romans 5:12. 12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. This means that a father represents his descendants, since Jesus did not have a literal biological father, the sinful nature was not passed on to him. Colossians 2-9, 9 For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus embodies two natures, divine and human. His human nature was derived from Mary, while his divine nature came through God, the Holy Spirit. Consequently, Jesus stands as both God and man, sinless, free from original sin, and fully divine and human. As all humanity is connected to Adam, everyone possesses an earthly body akin to his. These bodies are suited for earthly life but are limited by death, disease, and weakness due to sin introduced by Adam. Currently, all resemble Adam, but believers will eventually be transformed to be like Christ. Philippians 3, verse 21. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Hanukkah festival. The Jews surrounded him and asked the following, How long will you leave us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus replied, I told you, yet you don't believe. The works that I do in the name of my Father bear witness to me. But you don't believe it. You don't believe it because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never be destroyed, and no one will pluck them out of my hand. What my father gave me is greater than all other things. Then he indicates that he has a very close relationship with his father. The father and I are one. John 10, 26-30. Jesus' words made the Jews so furious that they retook stones to kill him. But he is not afraid and says, I have shown them many good works from the father. For which of these works will you stone me? They answer, We will not stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy. For you say you are a god. John 10, 31-33. Can God be three in one? The Trinity is the Christian principle of one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is important to remember that God is not limited by our human understanding, and we cannot fully comprehend the nature of God. However, we can trust that He is who He says He is. The Bible teaches us that God is one. There is only one God, the Creator of all things. Nevertheless, the Bible also teaches us that God exists in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not a division of God into three parts. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God. They are not three separate gods but rather one God in three persons. They are co-equal and co-eternal, meaning the three persons of the one God always existed together and each has the same importance. Matthew 28-19. 19 Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13 14. 14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 1 John 5. 7. 7 For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Mark 3 11. 11 Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. These passages demonstrate that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God, and they are equal in power and glory. And it also shows that even the fallen angels who are the demons already knew Jesus proving that he always existed. Note. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Born of a human mother, he was a fully human man but also fully God. His incarnation meant he came to earth and took on human flesh. 
He was like us in every way except sin. The term Son of Man does not mean Jesus was the literal offspring of God the Father, as each of us is the child of our human father. Although Jesus was a God, he showed it with actions and miracles, but as we learned earlier, the Pope proclaimed himself several times to be a God on earth, even though he was a simple man with no powers, so that is blasphemy. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Luke 15, 4-7 Jesus' words about repentance bothered the Pharisees. They considered themselves fair and perfect and thought they didn't need to repent. When some criticized Jesus a couple of years earlier for eating with tax collectors and sinners, he replied, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2, 15-17. The Pharisees were so arrogant that they did not recognize that they needed to repent. Note, it's like those people who think that because they are inside a church every day, they are perfect and do not need to repent, but behind that character, some people are speaking bad things about others, judging what people do, committing hidden sins, as if God were not seeing everything. They are envious people. They lie, commit adultery, sexual immorality. They are dishonest. They steal from others. There are even those who steal from the church. They care more about the lives of others, giving unnecessary opinions, instead of caring for their own family and trying to restore it, or they think they have the authority to cast out demons, but how can such a person be righteous in God's eyes committing these sins? After all, one demon cannot cast out the other. We are all sinners, but God's mercy is infinite if we genuinely repent. To be a Christian is not to be someone who never makes mistakes, but someone who recognizes it, repents, and goes ahead. A messenger sent by Mary and Martha arrived. They are Lazarus' sisters and live in Bethany of Judea. The messenger said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus says, The result of this disease will not be death, but for the glory of God, so, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus, our friend, fell asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. They thought Lazarus was sleeping and that he would be fine. They say, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll be fine. Then Jesus says bluntly, Lazarus died, but let's go where he is. When Jesus arrived, Lazarus was already dead for four days. Martha went to meet him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, his brother will be resurrected. Martha replied, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Who believes in me, even if he dies, will live, and who lives and believes in me will not die forever. Do you believe that? She answered him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. They went to the tomb of Lazarus, and all who were in their house also went there. When Jesus got there, he cried, and some said, Couldn't he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have prevented this man from dying? Jesus said, Take off the stone, and Martha answered, Lord, it smells bad because it's been four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for listening to me. I know you always listen to me, but I said this because of the people here, so they may believe that you sent me. After saying this, Jesus cried out aloud, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out with his hands and feet wrapped in linen bands and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, Take off his cloths and let him go. John 11, 1 44. After this miracle, the news spread and reached the ears of the high priest Caiaphas. He was the only man who could offer a holocaust and enter the presence of God. But his greed and arrogance only drove him away from God. He said this man is performing many miracles, if we let him free, many will believe in him, and we will lose our place in the Sanhedrin, so it is better for a man to die than to lose the whole nation, and everyone agreed to kill Jesus. 
Arriving in Judea, some Pharisees approached Jesus to put him to the test. And they asked him, Is a man allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus replied, Didn't you read that, in the beginning, the Creator, made the man and woman and said, For this reason, the man will leave father and mother and join his wife, and the two will become one flesh? Thus, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has united, no one separates. They asked, so why did Moses have a divorce certificate given to the woman and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. I say that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, will be committing adultery. The disciples said, if this is the situation between a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word only those to whom it is given. Some are eunuchs because they were born like this. Others were made like this by men. Others became eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this, accept it. Matthew 19 10 13. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 141 The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Two such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. 4. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. When God instituted marriage since Eden, he made no exception for divorce. In Moses's laws, the exception was made if there is a betrayal, but if it is for any other reason, the person who marries another one is committing adultery in God's eyes. Many people got married thinking about getting the divorce, if it does not work out, instead of thinking about a permanent marriage. Jesus also says that if they prefer to be single to dedicate themselves more to God, it's up to them, but there was nothing in the Bible saying that God forbade man to get married to dedicate himself only to serve him. Note, the Roman Catholic Church instituted this law that priests could not get married but not with the intention that they dedicate themselves only to God, but their only purpose was to keep all the inheritance that priests would receive from their parents, because, without heirs, the money automatically goes to the coffers of the Catholic Church, because the priests can't have a wife, but they always have children around. Many commit the atrocity of pedophilia. Did you know that when a person enters into a sexual relationship with someone, they are not only engaging physically, but also spiritually. When two people have an intimate relationship, there is a spiritual connection between them. We are spiritual human beings, that is, we live in a physical body here on earth, but we have a spirit within us which was placed by God to interact with us. It turns out that when we enter into a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, we open a gap for the enemy. And have you noticed that the relationship of those who live in fornication, that is, sex before marriage, is almost always in crisis. Some couples cannot separate, they even want to leave and live their lives separately, but there is always a connection between the two that does not allow that. Because these people are connected with their spirit and when they end a relationship, the pain is much greater and it is very difficult to overcome this loss because the person has given up body and soul. The Bible says that when one person sleeps with another, they become one flesh, that is, it is as if they were spiritually married, now just imagine a person who has several sexual partners, who can be considered single in the physical world, but is married to several in the spiritual realm. That's when demons gain influence and authority, forming soul bonds that act like an imprisoning force. This influence can manifest during intimate moments, where thoughts are in someone else, hindering the ability to break free. There are people who go for years without any kind of communication with their former sexual partner. But the moment they receive a message or see a recent photo of the other person, they are emotionally shaken. What happens is that, they became one flesh and time is not able to undo this union. This also explains the fact that many marriages today are in distress, the spiritual war in the relationship of the spouses is so great that they cannot be happy because they are still connected to other sexual partners from the past, and the result is people seeking sexual satisfaction outside of marriage. The initial irresistible attraction before marriage is often replaced by post-marital coldness, orchestrated by these demonic forces. The demons operate contrary to the teachings of God, first encouraging premarital sex and later aiming to sabotage marriages, 
potentially leading to divorce. The repercussions of premarital sex extend beyond physical acts, generating addiction and persistent guilt, trapping individuals in a cycle of sin. God created marriage so that husband and wife could feel completely satisfied in their sexual needs, and seeking these desires outside of marriage is a sin against our own bodies. If you want to break this curse, pray aloud, saying, Heavenly Father, I ask you forgiveness for committing sins against my own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to break all soul ties from my previous relationships. I renounce all the harm that these sexual alliances may have caused in my life. Cleanse my heart so that my feelings and thoughts are focused only on you. Bring clarity to my mind because your word says that the heart is deceitful. Cleanse my eyes, ears, mind, and every area where the enemy has brought resistance into my life. I repent and renounce the spirits behind mental adultery, physical adultery, betrayal, fornication, sexual immorality, lewdness, lust, carnal desires, sexual fantasies, impure thoughts, and obsession with the physical body. I ask you to disconnect my soul from each person with whom I have committed sexual sins. It is my will to break all soul ties, mind ties, and every spiritual connection. I declare that my soul is free from all the bonds established with those individuals. I will not allow any part of their soul to remain in me, nor will any part of mine remain in them. Therefore, I disconnect my soul from those people, and I disconnect their souls from me. I cancel every curse in my sentimental life and declare that I am washed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. If you are married, ask Jesus to restore your marriage and break all spiritual bonds related to your sexual history in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 15 to 2015 Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. 16 What? Know ye not that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. 17 But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. 18 Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin, d. A person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. 19 What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you and which ye have from God, and that ye are not your own? 20 For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Matthew 19 23 24. 23 Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 24 Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Most people believe that Jesus was talking about a sewing needle when he mentioned that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. But in reality, Jesus was referring to the city gates. In ancient times, these gates had two large leaves and a smaller door called the eye of the needle, intended only for pedestrian passage. When the large gates closed, getting a camel through the eye of the needle required the camel to shed its entire load, bend its legs and neck, a difficult task that often resulted in scratches. Jesus' teaching was not impossible for the rich but served as a reminder that all of us, whether rich or poor, should rid ourselves of our burdens, bow our necks in obedience, and kneel before God, recognizing Him as the path to salvation. The entrance to the kingdom of God is narrow and requires humility and obedience. Wealth or poverty is not a determining factor for salvation, but rather each person's willingness to submit to the will of God. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told, in memory of her. Matthew chapter 26 verses 7 to 13. The next day Jesus goes to Jerusalem and asks them to bring a colt that has never been mounted. He enters Jerusalem, and everyone cries out his name. The Pharisees in the crowd are angry and tell him to rebuke his disciples. Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This part fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9. 
The Jews are buried with their feet towards Jerusalem because they believe that they will have priority when the Messiah comes and resurrects the dead. For this reason, Muslims built a cemetery in front of the Eastern Gate, which is also called the Valley Gate in the Bible. The name Golden Gate comes from its yellowish color that intensely reflects the rays of the rising sun, and this is the place where the Messiah hoped for by the Jews hope would enter. The Muslims built this cemetery because in Jewish tradition it is said that a Jewish priest must not pass over a place where a dead person is buried because it will make him unclean. So when the Messiah goes through the gate, he becomes unclean. But the Messiah has already passed through the golden door, riding on a donkey, and he is called Jesus. And when Jesus returns, the Bible reveals to us that a gap will open up in the Sidrone Valley between the Temple and the Mount of Olives, that is, the gap will remove those Muslim tombs and finally open the golden door. There are no Israeli soldiers guarding this gate. Islam would not even need a war to try to discredit the God of Israel, it would be enough to violate the Eastern Gate to discredit the entire Bible. That is, nothing and no one has the power to open this door except at the time determined by the Word of God itself. The Sultan Suleiman, who ruled from 1520 to 1566, rebuilt the walls and the Golden Gate, but when he learned that the Messiah of the Jews, who would rule over the nations, would pass through this gate, he had it closed, not knowing that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 44, 1-3. One then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outer sanctuary which looketh toward the east, and it was shut. Two then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. 3 It is for the prince, the prince shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. Also there's a huge space behind the golden gate, that's the exactly location where the third temple will be built by the Antichrist. So when Jesus return he will enter the temple through the golden gate valley with all his glory. Zechariah 14-4 For on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Ezekiel 43-4 For the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Jesus preached in the temple every day, and the religious leaders tried to kill him. They did not know why the people were so amazed by his words. Recalling Jesus' ministry, it is clear that the fact that the Jews did not place faith in him fulfills a prophecy. Isaiah predicted that the eyes of the people would be blinded and that their hearts would be hardened, so they would not turn around in order to be healed. Isaiah 6:10. The religious leaders were very angry with Jesus, so they sent spies to try to catch him. They asked, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Luke 20, 21-22. Behind these words, there was hypocrisy and cunning. If he said, no, it is not correct to pay this tax, he could be accused of sedition against Rome. But if he said, yes, pay the tax, people, angry at being under the Roman regime, could draw wrong conclusions and turn against him. So, Jesus said, Hypocrites, why do you put me to the test? Show me a denarius. When they bring him a denarius, he asks, Whose image and inscription is this? They replied, Caesar. He gives the following guidance with great skill. Therefore, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Matthew 22 20, 25. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 22, 1-3. Matthew chapter 22 verses 16-23-16, Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. 17 You blind fools! Which is greater? The gold, or the temple that makes the gold sacred? 18 You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. 19 You blind men, which is greater, the gift, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 20 Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. 21 And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. 
22 And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. 23 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, without neglecting the former. No. After millennia, we live in the same situation, religious leaders teach one thing and do another, value more the amount of tithes and donations they will receive instead of how many souls can be saved. The Vatican, for example, gathers $6 billion in goods. In 2009, the Vatican Bank was being investigated for money laundering because of the Italian Mafia, which does business with the Catholic Church. According to Judge Nicola Grattery, local priests usually visit the homes of Mafia bosses for a coffee. This gives strength and popular power to crime, according to a survey. 88% of mobsters arrested in Italy call themselves religious. He says, before the killing, the mobster prays, they ask for protection for the saints. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Matthew 23, 37-38. Note, as we learned before, God always sent his prophets to try to open the eyes of his chosen people and bring them close to him, but they preferred to kill the prophets and not listen to them. Jezebel was the one who killed the most God's prophets. God never abandoned his people. It was them who turned their backs on God and went to worship statues. Whenever the people turned to God, there was always peace and prosperity in Israel, and he gave them victory in all battles. All the leaders and chief priests were gathered in Caiaphas' house, and together they were planning how to arrest Jesus and kill him. That's when Judas Iscariot came to them and asked what they would give him if he delivered Jesus. And they said 30 pieces of silver, so Judas accepted, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Note. Judas betrayed Jesus for an amount that would be equivalent to what a worker would receive from payment for four months of work. The Last Supper Jesus joined the twelve disciples and went to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. Not Easter. While eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me would betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he were not born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 26 verse 21-28 Note When Jesus said those words, he was saying he would be the sacrifice for our sins, he would spill his blood, and die for us to make a new covenant with God through him so we would not need a high priest offering a holocaust for our sins anymore. Thanks to his sacrifice, Jesus is the bridge who connect us to the Lord, and now we can ask for forgiveness directly to God in the name of Jesus. Arriving at the Mount of Olive Trees, Jesus said, Tonight you will abandon me. Peter said, I will never abandon you, and Jesus answered, Just this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus went to pray and asked them to watch, but they fell asleep. Jesus said, Get up and let's go. Here comes the one who betrays me. Judas arrived with several armed men. He told the soldier, the one I greeted with a kiss on the cheek, to arrest him. And so he did. A disciple pulled the sword and wounded the soldier's ear. Jesus said, Keep the sword. For all who wield the sword shall die by the sword. Jesus healed his ear and said, do you think I can't ask my father, and he wouldn't immediately send more than twelve legions of angels at my disposal? 
How would the scriptures that say things should happen this way be fulfilled? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading any rebellion so that you may come and arrest me with swords and rods? Every day I taught in the temple, you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that the scriptures of the prophets could be fulfilled. Then all the disciples abandoned him and fled. Jesus was taken to the house of Annas and Caiaphas and then to the Sanhedrin to accuse him, but he did not open his mouth, Jesus was assaulted and humiliated. Meanwhile, Peter was outside, and the handmaid asked him, Aren't you one of that man's disciples? He says I don't know what you're talking about, other people recognize him, and he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. So someone else asks, weren't you in the garden with him? And for the third time, he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And the rooster crows, as Jesus prophesied, Peter leaves and cries bitterly. Peter swore an oath. The Greek word for this is, anathema, which means excommunication. Consequently, he cursed himself from the house of Israel, the synagogue, and also excommunicated himself from the other eleven disciples. For instance, if someone is causing trouble within the church and the bishop declares, I place an anathema on you in the name of the Lord, that person will be eternally doomed. In Peter's case, by denying the Lord, he placed a self-curse on himself. The only one who can lift this curse is the head of the synagogue or a head rabbi. When Peter realizes he cursed himself and his only hope to revoke the curse, which is his rabbi, is about to be crucified, he cries bitterly. Note When Mary Magdalene and Mary went to the tomb and met Jesus, he said to them, Go, tell my disciples and Peter. After that, he went to Galilee to meet with them. Jesus then asked Peter, Do you filio me? Filio in Greek means a deep emotional attachment. Jesus repeated, Do you love me? three times, and Peter responded yes three times. Jesus then instructed him, Now, go feed my sheep. This repetition of questioning was meant to counterbalance Peter's threefold denial. Moreover, this reconciliation took place in front of all the other disciples, ensuring that once Peter resumed his ministry, nobody could raise any objections against him. Jesus was essentially conveying, don't ever bring up his failure. Pontius Pilate offended the Jews by using the temple's treasure, Corban, to pay for a new aqueduct for Jerusalem. The revolted Jews went to protest. While Pilate was visiting Jerusalem, he ordered his troops to beat them with batons. Many died from blows or from being trampled by horses, and the crowd dispersed. Pilate always tried to avoid rebellion so that this would not reach Caesar's ear and he would have problems. Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate. When Judas Iscariot realized what he did, he felt remorse, threw the coins into the temple, and hanged himself. Note, Judas never understood Jesus' true purpose on earth, as many at that time thought Jesus was the king of the Jews that came to free them from Roman oppression, and he thought Jesus would gather an army to defeat them, but he made it clear that his kingdom is in heaven, he came to earth to rescue the lost souls. When Jesus went to Pontius Pilate, he asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You're the one saying it. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the accusation they're making against you? Jesus kept quiet, he got impressed. It was a tradition to release a prisoner. During Passover, he had another prisoner named. So Pilate asked the crowd, Which of these do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus, called Christ? Pilate knew they had handed Jesus over out of envy, but the chief priests acted quickly and convinced the population that Barabbas should be released and Jesus executed. Pilate was in court, and his wife sent him this message, Do not get involved with this man. He's innocent because today, in a dream, I suffered a lot because of him. Pilate asked, What shall I do with Jesus, called Christ? Everyone replied, Crucify him. Why? What crime did he commit? But they shouted even more, Crucify him. When Pilate realized that he was not getting any results, but on the contrary, a riot was beginning, he asked to bring a bowl with water. He washed his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, it's your responsibility. Pilate was afraid of riots. He knew the Jews hated the Romans, and the only way to keep his place as governor was to keep them under control so that the news wouldn't reach Caesar. The soldiers stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. 
Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. Then they led him away to crucify him in a place called Golgotha in Aramaic, which means the place of the skull. Note. They very curious and vital fact. Everyone knows that Jesus died on the cross, but one thing that few people know is that the whole cross was tailor-made for a person who would to die on it. And before Jesus was crucified, he was placed next to Barabbas to be judged by the people who could free one of the two. Then the Jews decided to send Jesus to death and release a cruel murderer. And the Bible says that when they nailed him to the cross, Jesus had one of his arms dislocated by the Roman soldiers, and this happened because that piece of wood was too large, because it had been tailor-made for Barabbas, who was higher than Christ. The name of Barabbas means son of Abba, that is, son of the Father, and if we stop to think about who the children of God the Father are, they are, you and me, that is, that cross was not for Jesus but us. It had our measure, not that of the Lord Jesus. Then they crucified him with two thieves, and Pilate had a sign prepared and nailed to the cross, with the following inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Jews. In Latin Iesus Nazarenus, Rex Judeorum equals Inri many Jews read the sign, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. John 19:20. In 326 AD, Constantine's mother, Helena, visited Jerusalem and ordered the destruction of Hadrian's temple to Venus, Aphrodite, due to her obsession to pagan temples. She claimed to have discovered the true cross, the holy tunic, and the holy nails, asserting that Jesus was crucified at that site. She's sure it belongs to Jesus, she is not taking into account some facts, the emperors persecuted and crucified thousands of followers of Jesus. It means there are thousands of wood crosses and nails around Jerusalem. In John 19, verses 23 to 24 it says the Roman soldiers got the tunic because it was an expensive fabric. However, her claim contradicts the biblical account, which clearly states that the crucifixion took place outside the city. The Bible provides a clear description of the crucifixion site as being outside the city. The question then arises. Who is correct? Is it a pagan woman, Helena, claiming to know the truth and desiring to build a temple for her new god? Or is it the word of the only living God as written in the Bible? Note. Another specific fact in the Bible is that the place Jesus was crucified was near the city, not inside it. As the Catholic Church claims, in Ad 135, Emperor Hadrian built a temple dedicated to the goddess Venus, Aphrodite, only in Ad 335. Because of his mother, Emperor Constantine ordered the construction of the holy tomb in Israel, and it is located inside the city of Jerusalem. In addition, the church contains several elements with the symbol of the sun. As we learned earlier, the Romans worshipped the sun god Tammuz 